Creators, and welcome to episode 13 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your host, Ang Harrod, and I don't know about you, but I am pretty excited that today is the one year anniversary of this podcast. To celebrate, I'll be chatting to a guest who is very special to my heart, and we'll be talking about a cause that is very special to my heart, Books for the World. But first, book updates. So last episode, I talked about the Reddit Gifts book exchange, and I'm pleased to announce that I received my gift. It's an Italian novel called Time Skipper, and I can't wait to check it out. Though, unfortunately, I am super slack, and I still haven't managed to finish my Reddit Gifts book from last year, so now I have two to catch up on. You might also remember that I was thrilled to find a book-crossing book in the Kitchener Street Library last month. Book Crossing is a website where you log your book, uh, set it free into the wild, and then you can track where it travels, maybe anywhere around the world. Well, guess what? I found another one in the street library, and it is so much fun tracking them on the Book Crossing website. So if you haven't already, you should definitely check it out. Also, there have been some updates on the book copyright debate I talked about last year. You might recall that the Australian government had said that it would look into relaxing copyright law around Australian books, including decreasing how long literary copyright lasts for and removing parallel importation laws. So Australian authors and publishers spoke out about this, saying that it would destroy the local book industry and have the same impacts as have been experienced by New Zealand. However, a new bill has drawn the support from the Australian Human Rights Commission, which would help make books more accessible to people with a disability. According to the Human Rights Commission, only 5% of books published in Australia are available in accessible formats. The bill will make copying books into accessible formats an exception to existing copyright laws, allowing other people to speed things along by creating and sharing accessible versions. I'm sure publishers will kick up a fuss about this, but honestly, it is their own fault for not leading the way themselves. As per usual in Australian copyright issues, people are willing to pay, but they're not willing to go without content, and providers that drag their feet in making it available get left behind. The bill will also make it easier for libraries to collect, preserve, and grant access to materials. I also spoke about late library returns a few times last year, and there has been a new sheepish late return story. It's not the 40 or even the 120 years that were reached in some of the previous episodes, but a man in Montana, USA, has returned a book 35 years after he first borrowed it from the library. He returned the book with a $200 uh, with $200 enclosed and a written apology, saying that he was hoping for some redemption here. He'd even had the book signed by the late author and restored. The book in question was a copy of Bid Time Return, a sci-fi romance by Richard Matheson, who's the author of I Am Legend, and the thief apparently read it 25 times before he finally brought it back. Okay, so we'll be talking a bit more in depth about Books for the World later, but just a quick thing. Um, registrations have now opened for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation's Great Book Swap. They're hoping to raise $200,000 to buy 20,000 books for remote Indigenous communities. They've put up a gorgeous countdown video on their Facebook page, and you can check out the show notes for more information about how you, your school, or your workplace can get involved. 
As always, there was heaps of book news this March. Uh, one of the most heartwarming stories was about Aboriginal poet Ali Cobby Eckerman. Uh, the unemployed writer was living in a caravan when she received an email telling her that she had won the $215,000 Wyndham Campbell Prize, which is run by Yale University. A lot of her poetry is about being part of the stolen generation, and she said that she's going to use the money so that she can live with her son and grandsons and have housing stability. This is kind of cheating because it was the long list that was released in March, but look, the 2017 Stella Prize winner has been announced just on the 18th of April, and it is the Museum of Modern Love by Heather Rose, so I'm just going to skip the queue a little bit there. So Rose will receive a $50,000 prize, and I do have a copy, so I guess I should really get around to reading it now. The long list has been announced for the Man Booker International Prize, and there are 13 books, with the short list being announced on the 20th of April, and the winner announced on the 14th of June. Jan Lianki, who was uh, shortlisted for his novel The Four Books last year, has made the long list again this year for his book The Explosion Chronicles. <laughs> it's definitely book prize long list season, and the long list has been announced for the Australian Book Industry Awards. There are actually heaps of categories, so you can go check them all out on the ABIA website. The shortlists will be announced on the 1st of May, with the winners announced on the 25th of May. And the Children's Book Council of Australia have announced their shortlists for the book of the year in all age categories, and are just even looking at them, some of them look really, really good. Uh, so early March was World Book Day in the UK, and there was plenty of stuff going on. You can check out Aussie author Jackie French's video of a wombat eating a book, or you can also check out a video of Melania Trump reading a book to some children in hospital. Your choice. The International UNESCO World Book Day uh, takes place on the 23rd of April 2017. Now, there has been quite a bit of news this past month on author censorship, an issue which I am always interested in. In the UK, a school principal has adopted quite an authoritarian approach to his school library and has banned a number of books from its shelves. Not just the curriculum, mind, but from the entire library. Among the list are Irish authors Eoin Colfer, author of the Artemis Fowl series, and Derek Landy, who wrote the Skullduggery Pleasant series. Andrew Halls, headmaster at the prestigious and private King's College School in Wimbledon, has also banned Rick Riordan and Anthony Horowitz, describing their popular books as simplistic, brutal, or banal. Apparently, these bestsellers are so bad that they are no longer allowed on school grounds. Goodnight Mr. Tom, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, and Sherlock Holmes are apparently A-OK. -okay. So much for encouraging kids to read. Acclaimed Australian writer Steve Biddulph, best known for his books on raising children, was supposed to give a talk at a Tasmanian conference on building brighter, stronger families. Apparently, at some of his previous talks, the issue of school starting age had come up and as a result, Biddulph was asked to sign a contract stating that he would not discuss this issue specifically as it was considered too political. Although he hadn't planned on discussing it at all, he was unable to accept these conditions and Biddulph cancelled his presentation altogether. He then went public with the request on Facebook to express his concerns about authors being gagged. Tasmanian Premier Will Hodgman criticised his own education department for the decision to censor Biddulph. 
Even more extremely, an author in the USA was asked not to talk about her book at all at an author talk she was giving at a school. Barbara D, author of a young teen book called Starcrossed, was about to give her third talk of the day for the third year in a row to a middle school when a teacher pulled her aside. According to D, the teachers were concerned about the content not being age appropriate for the group of sixth graders, even though it was marked as for ages 9 to 13, and even though she'd already spoken to two groups of sixth graders that day. The offending content? The book is about a girl who joins a play and develops a crush on another girl. Dee was faced with a conundrum, but ultimately spoke generally about children's literature without mentioning or reading from her own book, despite a massive poster with the cover art hanging right behind her. However, sometimes authors do come under fire for what they say. Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie best known for her novel Americana, made headlines after her comments on an interview were interpreted as being transphobic. She said, When people talk about, are trans women women, my feeling is that trans women are trans women. She went on to say that it is difficult for her to discount the male privilege that trans women have been accorded while they live their lives as men. Her comments drew sharp criticism because her comments basically discounted the disproportionate impact of violence and suicide that is experienced by trans people. Speaking of women, English lit academic and novelist Bruce Holsinger caused a bit of a stir on Twitter after a conversation he had with some of his colleagues. After discussing how often male academics had their wives do significant work for them without due credit, Holsinger was inspired to do some research about how often the wives of male novelists experienced the same thing. The stories of how much typing these wives had to do for their husbands was unbelievable. Holsinger himself said ridiculous numbers of men, it seems, still did not know how to type throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, or at least performed a kind of deliberate secretarial incompetence when it came to the basic mechanics of writing and transcription. Yikes. Back in Australia, authors have been speaking out about the reluctance of Aussie publishers to publish homegrown science fiction. Sci-fi writers are apparently having to look overseas to get published, which means that Australians are missing out on stories set in our own country. Cat Sparks, a publisher of sci-fi anthologies, was originally the fiction editor at Cosmos Science Magazine until it stopped publishing sci-fi short stories in 2016. I'm not sure what the solution is, but it seems a shame that Aussie publishers aren't prioritizing science fiction where there seems like there is such a big demand. Now, speaking of books in demand, I was super excited to catch the library's ACT book sale. Fiction books were two whole dollars and it took place at the top floor of the Tuggeranong Library, overlooking the lake on a beautiful day. I managed to grab myself some bargains, so make sure if you're in Canberra you follow the library's ACT Facebook page so you don't miss out on the next one. I also managed to catch some great author talks in Canberra in March as well. Um, First up was the 2016 Stella Prize winner Charlotte Wood, who won the prize for her novel The Natural Way of Things. She gave a really interesting talk on her subversive writing, and after I got my copy signed, I was super excited to give her book a go. I also got to meet Caroline Baum, who spoke at the National Library about 
her new memoir, Only, a book about growing up an only child to parents who lost everything in World War II. She was an incredible speaker, and I live blogged the talk on the Tinted Edges Facebook page if you wanted to check out some of her great throwaway lines. However, it hasn't all been good book news in Canberra in March, and in fact, here is the big book crime story of the month. Beloved secondhand line and bookshop Booklore has been broken into not once, but twice over three weeks in March, with significant shop damage and money losses, meaning that they've had to close both times for repairs. Although there was huge community support, and even a super adorable note and gold coin left by a very young customer, Booklaw has decided not to accept any crowdfunding and instead leave it up to their insurance. In sad news, New Zealand cartoonist behind the beloved Footrot Flats Murray Ball has died aged 78. His long-running comic strip followed the dog, a hapless border collie who lived on a sheep farm with his owner. Now, there is just a single Harry Potter news item this month, because of course there must always be at least one. The British Library has announced a new exhibition celebrating 20 years since the first Boy Wizard book was published. Harry Potter, A History of Magic will be opening in the UK on 20th of October this year. But in extremely exciting news, the cover has been revealed for Brandon Sanderson's third book in his epic fantasy Stormlight Archive series, Oathbringer. The release date is slated for the 14th of November 2017, and look, I'm not that taken with the US cover, because I prefer the clean white Aussie ones, personally, but I am so excited that there is a release date. Sanderson is an absolute power horse of a writer, but he has planned 10 books in this series, which I only realized after I had already read the first two. A mistake, <coughs> King Cr Killer Chronicles, <coughs> that I keep making. John Le Carre has announced a new novel called A Legacy of Spies to be released on the 17th of November. Oh, sorry, September. Featuring his beloved character George Smiley, this book will join his other well-known works such as The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. An audiobook version of Sherlock Holmes has been released, with Stephen Fry narrating all 72 hours of the complete works. You can check out a BBC clip of Stephen Fry explaining how he does the voices of Holmes and Watson in the show notes. Then there's a film adaptation of My Cousin Rachel, a novel by Daphne du Maurier, um, which has been announced and will hit the cinemas on the 9th of June. I've only ever read Rebecca, but I have this absolutely gorgeous box set of her novels that my mum gave me, so I will definitely be putting that one on the list before the film comes out. And then speaking of films, I managed to get along to see the adaptation of Jasper Jones before it closed, but very sadly missed out on a Canberra author event with Craig Sylvie talking at the cinema while I was unfortunately out of town. I thought it was a really good adaptation with fantastic acting, but I have to say I was a little bit disappointed with the writing and characterization. I thought they softened the mother too much, and I thought it was a really interesting choice to downplay Charlie's romance. Anyway, it's still a film that was definitely worth seeing. And now to our special segment with a very special guest. So I'm here with my dad, Bill, and it's a very rainy day, and we're going to be talking about our family charity, Books for the World. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dad. Hello, Harry. Hello. <laughs> Hello, listeners. <laughs> 
So, Doug, do you want to tell us a bit about how Books for the World first came about? Books for the World, um, in case you don't know anything about it at all, um, is a little charity we formed in order to collect books and redistribute them to people who might need them or perhaps even want them. So, uh, so it, it, it started with op shops. When, when uh, our family came back from Indonesia in the mid-90s, there's an op shop here in Kilmore that uh, raises money for the local hospital. And they had like encyclopedias coming out of the doorways. They had, they had books they had no idea what to do with, and they were just sending them off to the tip. And it seemed to me to be a terrible waste. So I conceived this idea that, um, that I would collect all these books and, uh, and send them off to some English-speaking country that might you know, be able to use them, you know, specifically a, a school or something like that. Excellent. And so what was uh, one of the first things that you did with all of these books? What was one of your first big projects? Um, the first one was exactly that. We wanted to send you know, a container full of books to somewhere that needed them. But uh, I didn't know anyone in, in Africa, but luckily my cousin uh, had a friend who was from Tanzania who was doing a PhD in Brisbane. And uh, they went to the same church and anyway, it seemed that she would be able to redistribute the books for the for us if we got them to Dar es Salaam. So, um, so that was the plan was to fill a container with books. So, I had this. We'd take all the books from the op shop and other op shops, and we'd line them up and sort them out, get rid of all the ones that were, you know, dirty or broken or you know inappropriate and stuff like that. And we'd sort them out into ones that, you know, people could use for life skills like first aid or nursing or things like that and ones that children could use to learn from people could use others to um, to you know just read at home novels you know the whatever we could and plus you know hundreds of kilograms of encyclopedias so um, so we we started sorting them all out and and it's a lot of books to fill up a container is a lot of books how many how many do you reckon there were i have no idea no no way to tell i i in, like the, in the end we didn't actually send a container full um yeah we boxed them up I, I i got onto um to one of the 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 companies here that makes boxes and uh they sent us out all these boxes that they'd made with the wrong stamp on it so then we started putting the books into boxes. Oh, they donated them? Yeah, they donated them. Oh, that's so people nice. Are, people are very generous when yeah. you ask, and it's nice. It really yeah. is nice. And I mean, the people who give books to op shops are nice. Yeah. I mean, it's a yeah. it's a mixture of their their generosity um, in terms of, you know, I don't need this anymore, let someone else use it. And of course, you know, just the excess of our society, which has so much. And, uh, and it's just a shame to take these books and just toss them in the bin so I wanted to do something more with it yeah. and plus of course I, I, I do like science fiction books and I would occasionally trip over one or two of those and uh, and be able to to add that to my collection <laughs> um so so where did the books end up for this particular project well they were we were still we were still trying to get a big enough pile together yeah uh, when Kilmore and Wallen and Wandong and Hazeldean and King Lake 
all got hit by the fires in 2009. So for our listeners who don't live in Australia, uh, this is in the state of Victoria, which is in the southeastern part of the country. And there was a big bushfire in 2009, and it was a huge tragedy, and people are still, I think, getting over it. Really. Yeah, it, it killed nearly 200 people, which was very unusual for a place like Australia, where, where people are quite well educated as to what to do when there's a bushfire. For them to get caught like that and die was just a calamity. And then, of course, you know, a thousand people lost their houses, or a thousand houses were lost, and all yeah. the you know, all the people needed to replace them. And one of the things that we realized then, you know, as people were going out helping them build fences, people were going out and helping, you know, clean things up, you know, my wife and I, my wife Caroline and I, um, decided that uh, that maybe we could do something with the books because books are expensive if you have to buy them, but they're not expensive, you know, if you can find them at the op shop. So we essentially took all the books that we had and just put them on display. Um, all the groups that we thought would be useful so like cookbooks and um, you know handyman books and you know common novels that people like to read and that sort of stuff and we just put it in uh, in a, a building that we owned and uh, opened the doors and anyone could come in and they could sign the sheet and say thank you very much or they could just not sign the sheet but everyone could come in and take whatever books suited them and head off so, uh, so we did that for like three or four months, I think. Yeah. Did you get many people coming by? Yeah. Yeah. There were quite a few people came through. Um, there, we even had people coming and donating books so that we could give them away to people who came to get books. Oh, so wow. Was, that's amazing. It was. It was really nice. Yeah. And, uh, and we met a lot of nice people and, 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 you know, especially cookbooks. I think cookbooks were a big one because, you know, you buy a Greta Anna cookbook Oh. And uh, and it costs a lot of money, but bucks, but bucks. Yeah, you know if it's easily. yeah if it's burned, yeah you know, and you have to replace it, you're sort of like doubly sad, and it's probably not covered by anyone's insurance anyway. Anyway, so we did that, you know, oh, towards oh, I don't know how long we did it for. Anyway, it seemed, seemed like a couple of months. Yeah, we did that pretty much until people stopped turning up, and then we yeah. started packing them up again, putting them back in the boxes we got got donated to us, and uh, and went back to work on Tanzania so so we had like heaps of them boxes after boxes that were piled high as a roof I had a I was I was renting some space at the at the old Kilmore courthouse and um, well I was actually renting it and I was the president of the Kilmore courthouse committee at the same time it has two little jail cells out the back yeah and uh, and we'd filled one of them with these boxes it was just full yeah and then uh, then floor to ceiling floor to ceiling yeah. it was just full of books and uh and boxes and yeah anyway it was just but we're having trouble getting it to tanzania so well so what were some of the big obstacles do you think well one is one is it's it's quite expensive yeah if you send a full container it's a lot cheaper than sending just, like just a, a, a you know a cubic meter yeah which is but, ridiculous. Yeah, but a, but a full container of books we realized was beyond us. It was just too many. We we yeah. with you know me and my family and a few friends, we just couldn't manage that many. So so what we were trying to do was was you know send them. So uh, Yeah, so, so maximize the books but minimize the cost, really. Yeah. To an extent. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. so eventually a friend of mine you know, had, had some friends who were in this business, and they said, "Look, we won't charge anything for our, you know, our costs in terms of 
you know, um, you know, doing the paperwork and all the custom stuff. And that was just great. Oh. So then all we had to do was pay for the freight. Yeah. And so the freight was quite cheap. And so we got him off to Tanzania. Well, we didn't get him straight away because um, I moved up to Malaysia. And then I was working up there. And, and I was still trying to get them to Tanzania. Anyway, after a bunch of phone calls and all sorts of stuff, we got it on the on the boat. Off it went. I have no idea how a boat gets from Melbourne to Tanzania, but I think it might go through Singapore and, you know, the things change and then they end up going down. God, yeah, you'd either have to go, like, yeah. up over um, past Singapore or you'd have to go down through Bass Strait cross through the Indian Ocean and yeah, you wouldn't I'm, want to go that way. Yeah, well, I, yeah, well, I don't... The thing... I, I, I did some research on it and I yeah. don't think it went from Perth straight to, you know, South to Africa. Africa and then, yeah. you know... Yeah. It was... I think it went up Must have Singapore. Anyway. Yeah. Wild. Hmm? I said wild. Yeah, yeah. Wild. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so um, so eventually it landed in, in, in Dar es Salaam and they... Um, and, and so I called the woman and I said... It's there. Tell me how much money you need. I'll send you the money, yeah. and and you can pay for customs. Yeah. And it sat there, and she didn't answer me, and it was just going really slowly. And I'm like, oh no, you know what? What's happening to these books? Anyway, so um, so, you know, eventually, I don't know what the what had slowed things down. She gets back to me. And she says, it's you know, it's three hundred dollars. I'm like, fine. Here, there's the money. Yeah. Do it. Now I don't hear from her for ages. Oh. And she goes, oh, well, they're charging us for storage. And I said, but I sent you the money ages ago. Yeah, you know, yeah. Just, just do it, you know, yeah. get it, make it happen. Anyway, so eventually, I don't know how they did it, but eventually they got the books delivered and they sh sent us all these pictures. And I'll of, put some of these in the show notes so you guys can have a bit of a look. Yeah, and then, uh, and then through her church, they distributed them. And we got all these pictures of all these people just like Christmas going through all these books and kids were holding them up in the air going oh look I got one it was fabulous it really was a, oh. I mean I was ready to fly to Tanzania in order to, oh, yeah, to do God. it but I, I thought I thought it sort of defeats the purpose of trying to save money I mean I yeah, might as well yeah. send the airfare money to somebody else rather yeah, than use yeah. it myself but it worked out and it was great and but got, by then by then of course I'd moved to Malaysia so I didn't have access so I couldn't repeat the process yeah yeah yeah, so at that point, I guess, uh, you know, we'd, we'd taken care of, you know, a lot of nice people who were disrupted by the Kilmore fires, and we'd taken yeah. care of a lot of nice people in Tanzania, yeah. and uh, then we had to think of something else to do. Yeah, so um, if you've been listening to this podcast for the past year, you might recall right at the beginning of uh, 2016, we ran a bit of a crowdfunding campaign for our friends who live um, in Indonesia. Uh, near the city of Jogjakarta and they opened up a school called Sekolah Gunung Merapi which means uh, basically like fiery mountain school because it's right on a volcano that uh, some years back when I was living in Jogjakarta in 2010 got decimated by an eruption. Basically this school has a couple of different purposes. One of them is you know a lot of people died in this volcanic so we, we do a bit of disaster stuff don't we like fires volcanoes anyway so a lot of people when Gunung Merapi erupted in 2010 uh, there's a lot of farming communities who live up on this volcano and the because it's volcanic volcanic soil it's incredibly fertile like it's a great place to grow stuff except for when it's um, erupting which is obviously the worst place to be but people were very reluctant to leave their homes 
you know, I um, we raised some money at the time to help people uh, to drop off supplies at, at evacuation camps. And we were hearing stories about people who were sneaking away from the evacuation camps to go back to their homes to check on their animals. You know, people that they, they like that they want to stay where they are. And so anyway, so our friends have opened up this school. Number one, to help improve uh, literacy and help sort of supplement education for kids who live in this quite rural area. Um, but also number two, to help upskill these people who'd lost their farms, they'd lost their homes, um, and help them to take advantage of this new tourism boom that's happening because people love to come and look and see, like you can see where the lava came down, the volcano, and it's really quite an interesting place to go visit. And a lot of people climb Merapi because um, it's a massive, beautiful volcano. And when it's not erupting, it's like a brilliant place to go hiking. Anyway, so they opened up this school. Um, they had this, they had a building, but the building was just falling around their ears. It was just falling to pieces. It was really unsafe. They didn't have a bathroom they could use for the girls. The play equipment was super rickety and dangerous. They didn't have any books. They didn't have anything. So we decided to do something a little bit different and we decided to do a crowdfunding campaign and we ended up meeting our goal and um, you can you can check back through some of the other episodes but they with the money that we raised just ended up doing it was great so much. it really it was really, great. I mean and, and from my point of view it wasn't it wasn't so much that, that the books for the world was doing it it is that my family had taken into their hearts the idea of doing something nice for other people and taking books for the world forward themselves. And of course, this was Harry who was leading the charge here with her connections in Indonesia. And uh, and so so something that, you know, Caroline and I had started and moved well, forward like 10 with. 10 years ago now. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, uh, and the thing is, you know, we don't feel any compulsion to do better every time. We don't feel any compulsion to, to you know, keep doing the same thing over and over again. But we do enjoy when we can doing something nice and uh, and this was a very nice thing the the pictures of the school I mean the improvements that were made from the money that was raised and sent to them were, was fantastic oh it's unbelievable so mm. this I mean they managed to fix the playground renovate fill the holes in the roof renovate the bathroom so the kids could actually go to the bathroom they recarpeted the floor they um, built like this whole library and it just I mean like they got somebody in to paint the walls so it looks like a jungle it's just like it's gorgeous and I was talking to um, my friend Yasmin who's the she and Fajar are the brains behind the Sokola Gunung Merapi project and they um, you know the, the demand for books is so high that they're now like looking into getting more bookshelves so they can get more books and they ended up talking to one of the village leaders about what they were doing because they wanted to really involve the community and have the community supporting them and the vill apparently the village leader said oh books yeah someone sent us like a bunch of books a while ago but we didn't have anywhere to put them so they're yours and they have like 600 books in boxes that have just been <laughs> mouldering like like in somebody's shed oh well, hopefully they didn't come from tanzania no <laughs> <laughs> well, i think these ones are in bahasa which was good oh, okay. so um so yeah, it was a great project, and it's still on. It's still ongoing. Like they haven't even, you know, there's still a bit of money left in the kitty, so we've still got a few things. Yep. Up and the volcano hasn't like, erupted again. And the volcano hasn't erupted which is again, good. which is great. Yeah. So. So yeah. So what do you, what do you reckon is going to come next, Dad? What do you what do you think? Well, there are the a horizon? few ideas floating around. One of them one of them was yours, of course, which, which I've I've I really really liked. It's the idea of um, 
of uh, uh, what's it? What do you call it again? Uh, on the house. That's on right. the house. On the house. Yeah. So, so there are a lot of people in Australia who are struggling. There's no doubt about that. And uh, and there are a lot of organisations and and government government outlets that are designed to help these people, but they don't always get together. So, uh, so Harry had this idea that you just give them a roadmap or a pamphlet or a booklet that says, if you need this, this is the place to go to. This is the phone number to call. This is the, you know, the address where you can actually go and get hot food, clothing, a place to sleep, someone to talk to, you know, someone to help you with your legal problems, uh, you know, someone to help you get home to your family because you're stranded in a foreign place uh, on the house. And, and I just thought it was brilliant. So then we then we tossed ideas around about what the product was that we'd actually produce. I wanted a, a waterproof A3 piece of paper you could stick in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted more of like a, like a book, like a traditional kind of like flip through the pages book, which obviously is quite expensive. <laughs> yeah, so, but, it, so wasn't, gotta, but yeah. it wasn't the expense. I mean, I, th I think the difficulty we're having is just compiling the, uh, the list. Well, and, 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 and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of these projects, they just... If, if you want to do it right, you really have to get the planning done, and you've got to have all your all your eggs in the basket. You've got to have all your what do you call it? Bees in a row? No, that's not right. All your chickens in a row. Is that right? No. No. Keep trying. Keep trying. All of your ducks. Ducks. <laughs> there you are. There you are. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> <All together>. <laughs> <laughs> chickens was close though. Got bees from anyway, so that so so stay tuned as we as we keep uh, workshopping that idea. And obviously, and I want to do one for Kilmore, which well, is where I, I, I live. I think that would be actually a good think, place to start. Yeah, but I think honest. I think you should still work on the one for Canberra. Oh, I, I will. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, I, th I think once I think it, this might be something that we could replicate if if we get a good formula for doing it, um, and. You know, when you think of, of, of the difficulties homeless people have with keeping stuff, you know, you can't, not everyone can have a, you know, a shopping cart, push it all over the streets. Not everybody can carry things here. And a lot of them have very few things that they carry. So, yeah. so what I want is something they can carry very easily that won't add to their burden. Yeah. And, and that's why I was thinking of, you know, an A3 piece of paper you can fold up and stick in your pocket. And I think probably one of the big advantages to that is that it would be easy to update. Like you just print a new A3 piece of paper. Yeah, And yeah. It would, as services change, which they always do because funding is always chopping and changing. And that's hard yeah. as well, like <coughs> keeping track of who's delivering what service. And yeah. so if you can have one that's easily replaceable, um, if somebody loses it or easy to update, easy to access, and you'd probably want to have like a supplementary website as well so yeah i mean yeah, and, and there's lots of things to yeah because about. i mean if you make it other people might print it for you and hand it out for you oh right? exactly so but, yeah, you could but just we need to put PDF. a date on it all right i'm so tired of going on the government websites and there's no date on anything it's yeah. like it's eternal yeah <laughs> <laughs> these things are not eternal <laughs> they change just like you said yeah. yeah anyway so that's what i'd like to do next i think yeah all right mm -hmm. well i think that sounds good well thanks so much for chatting to me Dad. That's okay. When I write my uh, first book, you can interview me about that too. All right, that sounds good. That's a deal. <laughs>
I definitely got my groove back in March and churned through a whopping nine books. I won't go through all of them, but there are a fair few interesting ones worth mentioning. I got a very interesting review request for a book called Wish for Amnesia by Barbara Rosenthal, um, a critical view of the American art scene, the post-war experience of Jewish immigrants, disability, and the impact of neglectful parenting. Another surprising review request was the World War II British mystery novel In, in Farley Field by Rhys Bowen, which had a lovely spy twist on a Downton Abbey-style theme. A friend of mine gave me a collection of short stories called The Good Little Salonese Girl by Ashok Ferry, which was a great insight into the Sri Lankan diaspora. diaspora. Then was Fucking Apostrophes by Simon Griffith, which was a simple yet fantastic book about the correct use of apostrophes, a topic very close to my heart. Next was The Heart Goes Last by Margaret Atwood. I'd been waiting to read this book for a while, but I have to say it just was not one of my favourites of hers. The characters felt really wooden, and the story just seemed like it was all over the place and felt way, way too long. And then finally was the unbelievably uncomfortable and controversial book South of Forgiveness by Tordis Elva and her rapist, the unfortunately named Tom Stranger. I wrote a super detailed review on, of this on the Tinted Edges website. If you want to know what it's about, but you don't actually want to read it. And don't forget all the links to the stories I've talked about down below in the show notes. So readers, that is it for me. Thanks for listening and thanks for listening for the past year and tune in for the next episode in May.